Go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. My family and my kids and my team all accuse me of preaching 2 Timothy chapter 3, even if I'm preaching a Christmas sermon. I somehow managed to get back here. Because of all the texts in the New Testament, I guess this one is the mirror of our generation. Paul says, know this. And the Greek here is very interesting. It's almost like you could underline this with a red pen. Know this, Timothy. Pay attention to this. That in the last days, perilous times will come. The word perilous here, many of you have heard me say this 10,000 times. You could say it with me. The word perilous here is where we get the word ferocious. It's only used once or twice in the whole Greek New Testament. And it's used here to describe demonically inspired times of evil. Now, Paul is writing this at the time of the reign of, uh, of Nero. You can't get more ferocious than the time Paul is writing in. This is where I have problems with the historicist interpretation of Revelation, where everything is interpreted as having uh, happened, uh, you know, at the time of the first century. That makes no sense. Paul is prophesying here, projecting down into the end of the age. And he says, listen, you think it's bad now with Christians being fed to lions? At the end of the age, ferocious times of evil are going to come. Well, Paul, what could be more ferocious than what we're already facing? And here's what Paul would say, and I'm paraphrasing. It's bad enough when Nero's uh, uh, and the governments of the world are cruel and oppressive toward, my, toward the church. But there's one thing even worse than that. And then he says in verse 2, ferocious times will come because now here's your reason men and women the word men there ladies doesn't let you off it's the word for the human race men and women will become lovers of their own selves covetous boasters proud blasphemers disobedient to parents unthankful unholy without natural affection that means men and women will no longer know how to love one another. They will no longer know how to love their own children. The normal human affection that even the godless have by instinct will begin to disintegrate and people will become like ferocious beasts. And then he goes on and describes in more detail what they will be like. Truce breakers, false accusers incontinent, fierce, despisers. They'll hate you because you're not perverted. Kids tell me in high schools that if you're not a pervert, you're hated because you're not perverted. Traitors, arrogant, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. But here's the clincher, verse 5. These people will all go to church. And I'm not being funny. That's exactly what the verse means. They will have a form of godliness. The word there, form, is orthodoxy. They will go to orthodox churches and maintain a form of religiosity. 
but the power of God they will deny. Did y'all catch Dave Burkhart's statement a while this morning? Did you catch that? I told him he had put it on, you know, put it on a, a t-shirt and he could make a killing. A powerless gospel. Yeah. Say it again. Yeah. A powerless gospel is not good news. And so Paul is saying there will come a time at the end of the age when this gospel, this, this, it will be a form of godliness, but it will be powerless. It will not have the power to transform. Now, I want to tell you something. I believe that when, when, when the church rants and raves about same-sex marriage, but has made no preparation for the healing of sexual brokenness, we are fulfilling this verse. When we rant and rave about abortion, but make no preparation to care for the single woman who has had a baby out of wedlock, we are fulfilling this verse. Every time we stand in a self-righteous place of proclaiming evil as evil, but make no provision to reach out our hand in mercy to bring healing to that evil, we are evil ourselves. Maybe we are worse evil because we claim to know true truth. Now, can, can I get that across to us any clearer? I'm, look, you can't fight on every battlefield at once. I can't, I can't fight on every battlefield that I care about. I have to get my orders from someone smarter than me who knows where I'm supposed to be. And do what I'm supposed to do. And I try to be careful not to try to make other people feel guilty for not being on the hill that I'm fighting on. Because they've got to be on the one they're called to fight on. But at least may we all be in unity over the fact that our legalism and what Bradley was just talking about. Our unkindness and our lack of grace has helped produce an antagonism toward the church that is not the unsaved people's fault. It's the church's fault. And uh, the wisest thing we can do is repent of our own self-righteousness first. Then find ways to love those that don't fit our definition of lovable. Now, I want to I come back to one thing here. I'm only going to be able to introduce this. And then we'll get into it tomorrow morning in detail. Because Jim and Carol will be, be with us tonight. This having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, we all understand that. But just back up to verse 3. Men and women will become without natural affection. Without natural affection. Natural affection is a God-ordained pattern for becoming human. Giraffes become giraffes because they're born of giraffes. Monkeys become monkeys because they're born of monkeys. But you are not human in your fullest sense just because you are biologically produced by human uh, activity. We become human. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The, the, the humanist pro-abortionist could take what I just said and say, well, that's our point exactly. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're murdering a, a, a baby because it's not fully human yet. 
And if you take that mindset to the degree that many are now trying to take it, some say, well, it's not human until it's an embryo. Some say it's not human until it's right ready to be born. Now some are saying it's not human until it learns to speak. So you just keep moving that it's not human until it agrees with our party. But at the same time, there are elements of humanity that are not imparted biologically because I am more than biology. So a baby has to be talked to to learn to talk. And a baby has to be walked to learn to walk. He's got to be able to see how you walk. He's got to be touched to learn to touch. And all of the things that make us human are caught more than taught. They are, they are imparted to us by the way we relate to one another, the way we interact. And so more and more and more, this used to terrify me 25 years ago, but now it, I, it still terrifies me, but I, I'm just amazed at it. When I'll say to people who are in terrible pain or they're in addiction or they're in some kind of sexual brokenness or whatever, you name it. And I'll say, tell me, tell me what, what it was like at home as a child and they'll they'll look at me and in various forms they'll say well I, I, it wasn't bad it wasn't bad I said well I didn't ask you if, what it wasn't tell me what it was well I, I didn't get beat or anything or I mean don't tell me what it wasn't tell me what it was and then they'll they have nothing to say or if they found language, they'll say, it was, I don't remember anything. It was just kind of a long gray blur. It was a long gray blur. You know what that tells me? There was no conversation. There was no laughter. There was no play. There was no color. There was no music. There was no meals around the table. There was no rocking. There was no stories read there was no kissing hugging touching rolling in the floor there was no childhood and then see we think we are not humanists we think we are not materialists we are christians we believe in god but i'm i meet christians all the time that are humanists they're not they're, not, they're materialists you know why i say they're materialists they think when a kid turns 21, no matter what she was deprived of, she's now old enough to know better, like Bradley was talking about. That you, they should know better. They're old enough to know better. Why are they old enough to know better? Do you think the passing of time produces information in their mind? I'm always amazed at people who want to quote to me, the date on the calendar as an excuse for some stupid practice. Oh my God, Clay, it's 2010. Well, you know, we, we just... What has 2010 got to do with whether something is true or false? When did foolishness become wise because time passed? See, progress is the idol of our modern culture. That's why the progressive movement is always uh, behind some of the most foolish 
trends in all of culture. Has been for a hundred years. But as Peter Kreft says, if you're going to make progress and you've come to the edge of a cliff, the only way to progress is to back up. Yeah. <laughs> or to return. See, the word for repentance in Hebrew, shuvi means to come home. It means to turn around and come back. Or, as in the case of the lamb under the bush, let yourself be retrieved so you can be brought home. See, let yourself be found. What we have now is a culture of unparented children whose minds are being trained by a government school system and whose emotions are being hijacked by electronics and whose intellect is being falsely educated by a, a, a system that only selectively imparts information only that is useful for programming them for political purposes. It's not education. Aristotle said education is to train a child what is valuable enough to die for. That's what education is. So we have a vastly uneducated populace. Dr. Anthony Bloom said it is very likely that the most evil and wicked practice of every generation is completely unknown to those people of that generation. It takes a different generation to look back at them and say, how could they burn a witch? How could they kill their children? How could they watch Maury Povich? You see, if we are really mentally healthy, we will act crazy. Now think about what I'm saying. I'm not being funny. If we are really mentally healthy, we should sob uncontrollably. If we are really awake, if we really understand what we are. But see, that doesn't do any good. The Holy Spirit's got a better way than that. What he wants us to do is feel the darkness of it all. Comprehend it. Because you can't do the part that I'm fixing to talk about until you comprehend the depth of the evil. If you comp now get this, don't miss what I'm about to say. If you comprehend the evil, and that's all you do, the best you will become is a Pharisee. You will be self-righteous and grateful you are not like other men. What God wants is for us to comprehend the evil first in our own hearts. Then as we weep before God through this process of recognizing the desperate situation, we come into an understanding of grace that is so powerful that we turn back and enter that milieu I just described with power to bring healing and deliverance and to, to uh, reverse the curse. And see, what some of us in this room are just beginning to do is understand, you've, you've understood the evil, 
But you've not entered the power to bring deliverance and healing to the evil issues. Now here's the danger of, of, uh, of this whole issue. Some of you are not anywhere near ready to start penetrating these dark issues. You're dealing with the one inside yourself. The pain of having been raised in a family where the deepest, most basic needs of your life were not met. And what what I want you to understand, see, I want you to understand this big picture that we're talking about because you live in a world where that is. See, one of the reasons we have to have a team is because I'm, I'm way more about the big picture than most people are. I, I, I want every, I, Everybody should understand the big picture. And it irritates me when people are not willing to look at the big picture. Because nobody's brokenness is private. You never sin anonymously. Your sin affects everybody. Especially those closest to you. So when you don't have a big picture, you can be very narcissistic and myopic and ignorant of the ramifications of what you're doing. And you also don't understand the effects the world has on you. Mary and I, we used to walk, when we first married, we would walk through a mall and Mary would be physically sick by the time we got to the other end of the mall. I was, I was not affected like that. But her spiritual sensitivity, I'd say, honey, what's the matter? I thought it was physical. She'd say, I feel every rapist who walks past me. I feel every child molester who's there to pick up somebody's child. I feel every adulterous husband who's there ogling of all the women while he walks next to his wife. She said, I feel like I, I, I'm being suffocated by it. So there, there, are, there are certain elements of spiritual discernment that can cause you to, you have to back out of it. You, you can't save people who are drowning if you're drowning. But the danger in that, of course, is that you can go too far and just become self-protective, which Mary obviously doesn't do or we wouldn't be here doing what we do. But I want you to have the big picture, but... I want you at the same time to stop right now, take the big picture, look at it, say, uh-huh, I got it, and lay it over here, out of the way. Because I want you now to focus on you. Be selfish for about five minutes. We're going to go a few minutes over. If the Holy Spirit has not been able to bring you to the point where He can begin to bring your un, unmet love needs up into the light, then He's going to begin to do that today. He'll begin to do it now. If perfect love casts out fear, imperfect love makes room for fear. And so the failure of a man and a woman to properly love a child 
See, it's obvious that God intended every one of us to be loved by a man and a woman who love each other. That's how God intended it. The obvious fact is, even now among non-Christians, is, huh, who'd have thought it? It takes a man and a woman who love each other for a lifetime to raise stable, healthy children who know they're loved. That's the way God intended it. When God came to earth as a baby, God did not put him in a dysfunctional family. He put him in a family with a stable man and a stable woman who loved each other faithfully, heterosexually, and for life. And so this is the way God intended. Now, to whatever degree that has not happened for you, to whatever degree you were not mothered, to that degree your heart is damaged. Being born again doesn't automatically heal that damage. The potential for healing is in the new birth. But guess why Jesus called it a birth? Because it is a beginning. And that which is born has to grow and mature. We've tended to call the process of growing and maturing healing. And that's okay. But the fact is, it has to do with maturation. And, and, and the Holy Spirit brings us to a point where we are able to begin to grow into our true self. This is what Mary talked about all morning. Coming into your true self. Now, I can't get into this in near the detail that I want to. I just want you to be able to rest and, and, and enjoy the rest of the night Knowing that our focus tomorrow, God helping us, and he will, because this is his heart's desire, is to bring up into your conscious mind whatever in your unconscious is unhealed. And if you, if you were not fathered, if you did not know the love of a father when you were little, turning 21 doesn't heal that. I mean, how many of us have to be talked into understanding that 20, there's many, many, many 40-year-olds who have gaps in their maturity and they behave under certain circumstances like a five-year-old. There are parts of you that need the grace of God to bring you into healing. Now, here's the sad part. Evangelicalism takes what I'm talking about right now and calls it pop psychology. Now, the way to diminish something and dismiss it and, and uh, ignore it is to label it so you can dismiss it. So you end up with 50-year-old pastors standing in pulpits, manipulating and dominating and controlling people for their own self-aggrandizement destroying churches, running off with the secretary. But if you confront them with their brokenness that's causing this behavior, they'll actually, and I've had them say it to me, even with the divorce in process and their children never wanting to see them again. That's all pop psychology. I was taught better than that in seminary. It's very hard to be patient and merciful to people like that. So I'm probably not. But you see, they're, they're, they're under a demonic system of religion. Are you getting how much religion is the enemy of the real? Yeah. 
I had a friend who was asked to come to a Christian radio station and debate. It wasn't supposed to be a debate. It was supposed to be an open, godly conversation. But he gets there, and here's this hyper, fire-breathing, fundamentalist pastor who's on the radio program with him, and he's going to refute everything my friend, who is a family psychologist, was going to do. And my friend just wrote a note real quick. It's, it, it, the, the note, he wrote a big note to himself said, Remember the oppressed. And he stuck that up in front of himself so he could survive this encounter. Remember the oppressed. And the oppressed are the guy, people in this guy's church who are beaten to death with what you better do to please God. And they're dying under that weight. I want to tell you from experience, listen to me, I want to tell you from experience that the power of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that not only saves my soul from hell, also saves my mind from insanity, my emotions from perversion, my sexuality from self-destruction, and my relationships from coming to an end. But that's only true if I appropriate with the same faith, that provision for those parts of my life that I believe Him for, for my salvation. Amen. Why are so many Christians disintegrating? They'll go to heaven when they die. They'll just die about 40 years too soon. Because they don't understand how to let God into their marriages, how to let God into their sexuality, how to let God into their relationships with their children, into their depression, into their uh, habits. How does the Holy Spirit come in and begin to bring healing to those things? You know, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, most men live lives of quiet desperation. Part of that is the nature of the fallen condition. Just the awareness that something at foundation is wrong and we cannot put it right. But what I was talking about goes even beyond that. It goes into a realm of psychological torment that would have been healed in the arms of stable, loving, consistently trustworthy parents. I don't mean they were perfect. I don't mean they never made mistakes. But there was an awareness at the base of life my parents can be depended on. So when, when you hear people begin to explain to you that they did not go hungry and they, did, they, they had a place to sleep and they were not in any immediate physical danger and that's their litany of proof that they had a good childhood, I want to tell you that everything they just listed is true of prison. It is not food, clothing, and shelter that makes parenting. That's a given. Less than that, and you deserve jail yourself as an irresponsible parent, abusive parent. When we talk about parenting, we're talking about eye contact. <laughs> we're talking about lots of physical touch. And I don't mean spankings. I mean holding. I mean laughter. I mean telling stories. I mean arms around long walks in, 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 in conversation. Conversation where eyes meet eyes and where 
you're not just telling the child, but you're listening to the child. And what, what he or she says to you matters because they're saying it, even if it makes no sense to you. You listen. God did what he did out of the core of his nature. And he created man and woman in his own image. He is a trinity. Man, woman, and child is in his image. They are a trinity of one family, three in one. The fact is, God intended my dad to love my mother so much that she would be free to give herself to me so that the formation of my inner life was in was was filled with my mother's love and my father's love overshadowing my mother's love so that the the male love need in me and the female love need in me got filled up and by the time I was 18 to 21 years old I should have been a full grown fully orbed stable adult to whatever degree that didn't happen for us God doesn't just put King's X on it and say, okay, it's, it doesn't matter now. You turn 21, you're an adult. The system has to have some number at which they point to you and say you are an adult. 18, 21, it's arbitrary. Thankfully, I mean, aren't you glad they don't move the numbers to accommodate the immaturity level of the generation? Uh, right now, you'd have to be 40 years old to uh, get a driver's license. But you do have to understand there, there are reasons why people are not maturing. There are reasons why grown men in their 30s want to be teenagers forever. Who are afraid to make a commitment to marriage. Who really like it that the trend in culture is to just shack up. Just be perpetual teenagers in heat. With no responsibility to anybody but their own selfish selves. There's reasons for that. The ramifications of that lifestyle is the ongoing disintegration of the child, the children that they produce. But they're so preoccupied with their own unmet childhood needs that they just ignore what they're producing. And so that makes the children they're producing even less parented than they were. So the domino effect gets worse and worse and worse. The iniquities of the fathers get handed down to the children, to the third and fourth generation. Once again, that is not God punishing the children because their parents were broken. What kind of, what kind of foolishness is that? That God would punish the children for the brokenness of the parents. <clears throat> that statement is not an edict of a juror, it is a description of reality. Did you get what I just said? It is not, look, people think God killed Adam and Eve because they disobeyed him. The day you eat the fruit, you're going to die. Just eat it. I'm watching. Am I wrong? Is that the way some people read it? How about this? Listen. 
the, the, the day you eat this fruit, death will occur. So don't do it. Now, does that make more sense uh, as a parent? Well, that's exactly what it says. It's not God handing down an edict. It's God describing reality. If God is not the, fount- the fountainhead of everything, everything you care about, everything good, everything lovely, everything true, everything pure, everything that is a good report, that's Him. What I'm trying to get you to understand is there's two kinds of damage we all can have. There's, there's damage done to healthy tissue that needs to be healed. Like a molestation or the death of a pet and you saw it happen. Car runs over a beloved pet. Or your father loses it one night and just goes nuts and tears up the furniture. It only happened once, you know. It's an outside stimuli causing internal trouble. But because everything else is pretty stable, you can cope with it. Okay? But then the other kind of problem is not an event that happened to you, but the absence of vitally needed events that never happened. Are you, are you with me? I got a broken leg. They fixed my broken leg. That's great. My leg never formed. Which one would you rather have? Well, obviously, you'd like to have the break that can be healed. When I'm dealing with really hurt people, and I find out that what I'm dealing with is not the event that hurt them, but I'm dealing with the absence of events. The burden is much greater for that, that person. Uh, I mean, this, is sim- this may sound simplistic to some of you, but are you getting it? You never knew a father's love. You never knew a father who loved you. He would die for you. And because he would die for you, he will not let you get away with evil. The great comfort and security that that creates. My oldest son, who is adopted, who went through quite a bit of learning from me what it was going to be like to be loved, if you get my meaning became a horse trainer and he heard me teaching this one night and he said you know he said I I know I know what you and I went through and he said I've learned something with training horses he said if a horse is wild and we put him in a pen he'll run to the every edge of that pen he'll hit every fence in that pen trying to find a weakness And if he doesn't find any weaknesses in the pen, he'll settle down and we can saddle him and train him. But if he hits a part of the fence that is weak and he can push through it, he'll run straight, straight, straight. He'll run 
until his heart explodes and we have to bury his carcass. When you haven't known the boundaries of a loving father and mother, you don't realize it, but there's part of your heart that breaks through boundaries all the time. You're pushing, always pushing, and and you're what you start running, and you think you're free. You think you're free. You're not free unless you're under the love and boundary-keeping care of a father. You know, the spirit of an orphan is not, I'm weak and needy. That's not the spirit of an orphan. The spirit of an orphan says, nobody's there for me but me. And i got to take care of me. I can't depend on anybody else. I'll take care of me. Jesus said, I have not left you orphans. To belong to someone means your behavior affects them. And you have no right to sin and think it's your privacy, private property. You have no rights at all. To belong to Jesus means you belong to him. Then he begins the work in your heart necessary to bring healing to the parts of your life that are potentially destructive to you. Now, it's a terrible thing when what drives you into the most important earthly relationship of your life was anxiety masked as lust. But that's what I see happening in many relationships, which is why divorce is rampant. Marriage is for adults. And so because many people are no longer growing up, they don't know how to marry. They don't know what marriage is for. So when the troubles of life begin to hit and the sex drive can't fix it, they have nothing to turn to. There's nothing meaningful in their life to hold them together. And so they fall apart. And everybody has this sexual connection when they have this anxiety. Many people just hurt. They just suffer. They have no way to subjugate it into another form. They just, they just live in, in agony and fear. They're always waiting for the next tragedy to happen. Uh, and they're not in the tragedy, so they're imagining the coming tragedy, which, what did I tell you a while ago, happens. When you imagine the tragedy, it is far more damaging than if it actually happened because the imagination uh, causes the release of chemicals in the body that uh, you're not, your body was not meant to, to, ca to carry. People become addicted to their own adrenaline. They, they live addicted to this feeling of anxiety, this fight or flight. And, and so if, in some cases, if they're not in a traumatizing relationship, they have to go make one. See? Again, how many so-called marriages are actually people trying to 
cope with their anxiety using another person as an object of their conflict so they can feel better. Some people grew up in so much chaos that they don't feel comfortable unless it's chaotic. So they will make it chaotic so they can feel better. Because a real chaotic event is easier to cope with than quietness that is impending chaos. But a normal person looks at such a person and says, you're crazy. Why do you make things so hard to live with? Why are you so contrary? Why are you so conflicting? Why do you get so angry and spew like you do? Why do you make me feel like everything I do is your enemy? Because it makes me feel better. They don't say that, but it makes me feel better when you're miserable. Makes me feel better. No, no counselor can fix that. No pastor can fix that. The only thing that will fix that is when the person who is creating the chaos is willing to deal with the root. Now listen to me. This is true for all of us. The neurotic behavior that we develop that causes trouble for us and for others, whether it's sex or drugs or alcohol or compulsive spending or compulsive religiosity, or compulsive gambling, you name it, whatever it is that is compulsive and overbearing in your life, is not as scary to the practitioner of it as the pain they are trying to cover up. But what they don't realize is the pain they're trying to cover up with the crazy behavior is not as dangerous now as the crazy behavior is. It's become more dangerous than the danger they were trying to hide from. Are you tracking with me? Now, it's the grace of God that brings such a person into a trauma that is so big their coping mechanism doesn't work anymore. Sometimes that trauma is coming here. Or coming to some church. Or hearing some testimony. Or having a friend at work say, you know what, I... I I may lose your friendship, but i got to tell you something. And then he lays the truth out. The power of truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. But Jamie Buckingham said, yeah, that's true, but first it'll make you miserable. <laughs> the truth will make you free. Thank God he's not, he's not interested in... in Keeping your face in place. God, God, has, God is the most irresponsible person when it comes to PR. He, he will let a whole career collapse 
to save the one he loves that that career was about to destroy. He'll let your finances dry up to save your self-affirming ability to produce. He'll let it all dry up. He'll shake everything that can be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken may remain strong. See? Okay. The anxiety in me uh, became tied to lust. I've told you that already. Now, that may not be your story. I sense that that is not the story of most of you who raised your hand a while ago. Your anxiety seems to be tied to other things. But the point is, the root of it, the beginning of it, was in the foundation of your early childhood. But you grow up in a culture that tells you, grow up, act like an adult, quit, quit whining, quit complaining. You've even got a church system that says, uh, you know, that's humanistic to focus on childhood. It's humanistic to focus on the past. How many times have I sat in marriage counseling situations where a husband will come in? It's always the husband that says this. He'll say, now, you know, I'm, I'm here to deal with our marriage. I'm not here to talk about my childhood. It's in the past. It's got nothing to do with this. And I always say to such geniuses as that, let me get this straight. You have grown up and lived for 20 plus years in the home of two people, I assume. At least I know your earliest beginnings consisted of two people. And you have married based on nothing but your experience in that home. But you only relate to your wife based on your own independent thought that has nothing to do with your childhood. Is that what you got me trying to understand? Now, if we can get past that point, we can make progress. If we couldn't get past that point, there is no sense in trying to make progress. I am the product of what I went through. I am not independent of my experiences. And the passing of time does nothing to diminish the effects of evil. Time doesn't heal anything. Look at a graveyard. They're not doing very well. Been there a long time. Just give it a little time. Just give it a little time. Now give it a little time and what it'll do is it'll sink down into the hidden. Then it'll begin to suppurate and produce poison. That Hebrews chapter 12 says begins to defile everybody around it. It's in the past. It's in the past. Same attitude, see. It's 2010. Why are you still believing so and so? The exaltation of progress and the dishonor of the past. What a great demonic setup for not dealing with reality. The future will produce perfection. Just what Ron said. The future produces an imagined perfection that never comes. And the past doesn't matter. 
even though I am the product of everything I have experienced up to this moment, for good or for ill. And to say it's in the past is mental illness. I'll never forget the British, the British, Mary and I, you know how much we love the British people. Britain is like a second home to us, has been. We were teaching on this one night, and an older man walked up to us, 60 plus years old. He said, I hear what you're saying about the past affecting us. He said, I need to tell you what happened to me when I was a little boy because I, I need to know if it maybe affected me negatively. He said, when I was seven years old, I was sent off, you know, to boarding school like so many British children are. And he said, uh, when I was sitting in study hall one day, uh, one of my classmates came over, older boy with a newspaper, and he pointed to an obituary, and he read the obituary, and it had my name uh, to the person. And he said, are you kin to this woman? And he said, I read the obituary, and it was my mother. Now, when he said this, his 60-plus-year-old face looked like he was seven years old. He said, it was my mother. You could see the frozen fear and terror in his eyes. He said, nobody ever told me she was dead. Nobody to this day has ever told me she was dead. My father never mentioned it to me. Could that have affected me badly? Now, before you think that that's crazy, check your own heart. What is it that may have deformed you that you don't let yourself look at? I'm not trying to get you to be weird and introspective. I'm not trying to talk you into staring at your own navel. But if it's in there, don't you want the Holy Spirit to bring it into the light so he can heal it? He will. He will. We have so limited the work of the cross to conversion. Are you understanding what I'm saying? I'm not diminishing conversion. I mean, can you imagine being pulled out of an, an ocean? You almost drowned. You're pulled out of the ocean. You, you, you're not going to drown now. Isn't that wonderful? Now we're going to get up and go home. Oh, no, no, no. All that really matters is that I didn't drown. I'm going to just lay here and just be so grateful that I can breathe air. I didn't drown. Come on. We, there's more to it than, oh, no, no. You, you, you shouldn't diminish the glory of me not drowning. That's really all that matters. I'm, I was going to drown, and, and now I'm not going to drown. That's what the church looks like to me. You know, I'm born again. I'm born again. That's like a baby saying, I'm born, I'm born. Whoopee, I'm born. You know, if he's still doing that when he's four, it's an it's a aberration. You're born to grow. So the cross is where Jesus not only bore our sins... It is where he destroyed psychological wounds. It's the crown of thorns on his head. The curse, the crown of thorns. 
He's come to make the blessing known far as the curse is found. The curse on your mind, the agony, the torment in people's minds. Hebrews chapter 2 says Jesus came to destroy him who had the power of death and to deliver all of those who all their lifetime suffered the torments of death. And the implication in that text is death is plural. The many manifestations of death. Separation anxiety. What's another word for separation? What's the ultimate separation? Death. What's another word for anxiety? Fear of death. Separation anxiety is ultimately the fear of death. Hebrews 2 says Jesus came to deliver those who were under the, their whole life under bondage to the fear of death. Why did I get up and go to see if my mother was breathing when I was two and three years old? Fear of death. See, his life was connected to mom. He was afraid of dying, so he had to go check mom to see if she was. All fear ultimately is fear of death. You're not really fear of heights. You're fear of the sudden stop. You're not really afraid of the dark. You're afraid of what's in it that's going to get you. All fear ultimately is rooted in the fear of death. So when this foundational fear is in you, some of you who raised your hand last night, you said your whole life is, is in anxiety. You see, the early church, let me just, let me just digress here for a minute because it's really not a digression. The early church did not see the resurrection of Jesus as an event in history. Are you with me? If you and I drew a timeline, we would, you know, we draw our timeline and we'd say, well, here's, here's the cross, here's the resurrection, here's the early church, and here's the medieval church, and here's the end times. No, no, the early church didn't think like that. That's why the New Testament, you, you see them talk about we who are in the end of the age. The early church would draw a timeline like this. History, 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 the cross, resurrection, end of history, beginning of eternity. That's why they could go in an arena and face lions singing. You understand? From the resurrection on, we are in eternity. Now, now that, that may seem like a, a, a distinction without a difference. But, but you need to understand, Jesus has already settled yes. the death issue. Yeah. Death is dead. Yes. Death is dead. Yep. I can't... I can't I can't even get into that right now except that when we begin to pray into this in just a few moments, we are praying, drawing on the power of the resurrection. Yes. The power, what Hebrews 7 says, calls the power of an endless life. That Jesus is the guarantee of the new covenant and he, 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 uh, he sustains us with the power of an endless life. And that resurrection power goes into your inner spirit and begins to awaken the parts of you 
that were, were not nurtured on the human level and you become so connected to him that you are able to then turn and forgive your parents, bless your parents, honor your parents, bring your parents in, parent your parents if need be because of the power of the resurrection. Well, didn't that happen when I was born again? It was legally made available when you were, quote, born again. God's not interested in legalities. He's interested in realities. A powerless gospel is not good news. Let's pray. Father, we lift up to you now every man and every woman in this room. We lift up to you our parts, our hearts, our memories, all that has gone to make up who and what we are. We are not independent of our yesterdays. Our yesterdays is what makes up our present. All that we ever knew, all that we ever had, all that we ever were, all that we ever were deprived of. It's all still there, waiting for the redemption of the Son of God. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took upon yourself on the cross not only the penalty for our sins, But your word says you took upon yourself the death of all of us so that you might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, through whom we have been held in bondage to the fear of death all our lifetime. You came to deliver us from death and the fear of death. And so we thank you that this anxiety that we have lived in all of these years is about to meet its death. Death thou shalt die. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.